You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, bitch. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Freddy Krueger gives us a final new nightmare on Elm Street. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. Bitch! One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And I'm Adam Thomas, bitch. And I am Thomas Mariani. I'll get you, my pretty and your little soul, too! Oh, God. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Freddy line. There's no <laughs> other great Freddy line <laughs> at nope. all. Not none whatsoever. Um, and here to continue proving that theory is uh, one of the various children of Elm Street, because every town has an Elm Street. It is Mr. Desmond Alexander Peel. Desmond, how are you doing? Let's get high. Yeah, how are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, we're doing great, but we are a clean show. We are a family show, as you can tell from Adam's language. Yeah, Peel. <sighs> Well, it's, I guess it's I guess it's time for me to go ahead and make my exit. And that was Desmond's time on the show. No problem, anytime. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Desmond, of course, you're on for uh, this particular episode, uh, which is all about Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, because we're celebrating 35 years of uh, this particular series, which started weirdly in November of 1984, which I found out recently that's, that's so odd it came out like the week after Halloween. In 84. As you were saying that, it just reminded me of how old I am, because I'm 35, and now hearing it's the 35th anniversary coming up, it's it just reminds me, oh my god, I'm as old as this movie. Uh, I'm 36, so why don't you go play with the other kids? <laughs> um, yeah. I just, that's ridiculous. 35 years, man. We're covering two films that sort of deal with uh, Freddy after a certain sort of cultural zeitgeist point. Because uh, obviously in 84, Nightmare on Elm Street blew up and it spawned several sequels to varying degrees of quality. Let's just say. Because um, we've covered other horror franchises on here, Adam, like Friday the 13th or Halloween. And uh, we can definitely say that Nightmare on Elm Street isn't the most consistent, necessarily, of these franchises. Yeah, I think you and I have actually been saying that for a couple of years at this point, to where out of all the most beloved franchises, this one is the most flip-floppy. This one didn't know what it wanted to do until I'd say like, what would you, part four, when he really started getting comedic, and then they just kind of stuck with that. Well, I would argue there's a gradual sort of shift from like, the original Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy is sort of grounded, has a bit of playfulness, progressively becomes more of like sort of comedic character because obviously at this time the sort of slasher typical character of like you know michael myers or jason Voorhees didn't really speak didn't have much of a personality versus freddy being played by robert england so consistently had a personality that i think gradually became more and more comedic as time went on but desmond i know 
you uh, decided to come on here and... I've talked with you previously on your own show, uh, Desmond's Flicks, about um, a couple of Wes Craven films, and this is obviously the brainchild of Wes Craven. So it's safe to say uh, Freddy has a place close to your heart there? Yeah, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street was the first horror film I saw when I was about five years old, and that was what made me a horror fan. Freddy was my favorite growing up. It was Freddy and the Crypt Keeper. That was like... When kids were watching their, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, that was like my <laughs> the thing that I liked, Freddy and the Crypt Keeper. And I remember seeing uh, Freddy's Dead uh, in theaters with my family opening weekend with like the 3D glasses and everything, and it was an event. And and over time, my my feeling about the franchise as a whole has has changed. But that first film and also part three, uh, those really. Are, are films that I that I hold close to my heart. Well, and what's your history with it, Adam? Where did you first remember sort of getting into Freddy Krueger as a horror character? The first thing I remember with Freddy Krueger was uh, the scene in part four where the girl turns into the roach uh, and he squashes her in like the giant roach motel. I remember seeing that when I was real young and uh, it scared the piss out of me to the point where I didn't visit the franchise till well into my teens. I st- like I started my slasher, you know, love with like Michael Myers and Jason. And then when I finally graduated to Freddy, uh, I really did grow to love the character because a, it was something different. He did talk. He he's a real sick fuck. Like the, the basis for the character and everything. And just Robert England plays him with such relish and just, you know, just joy and love for the character. But yeah, as I've gotten older and revisited it, you know, several, several times, there, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of shit, too. I, I do agree, because along with visiting our two films, which we'll specifically mention in a bit, I did watch rewatch a couple of the other ones that I hadn't seen in a while. There's at least a lot of experimentation that I appreciate, because with, like, the sort of Friday the 13th or Halloween, you kind of get very familiar kills most of the time, and the most the kind of experiments is like, oh, Michael Myers ripped some dude's throat out, or something like that, as opposed to, like, even in something like Dream Master, you're still getting weird things, like he eats souls out of, like, little pizzas that have, like, little meatball heads and shit like that. There's at least some kind of experimentation, something very different and wide-ranging with every movie. And for me, um, actually, my first exposure, much like I think most pop culture in general, was uh, to Nightmare on Elm Street was through The Simpsons, because of the Groundskeeper Willie Treehouse of Horror parody. It was only the first time I was aware of what Freddy was. But then again, Freddy Krueger was also kind of like how I talked about with Candyman in our Clive Barker episode a few weeks ago. Is sort of this character that kids recognize as just sort of like a cultural figure. Even if they haven't seen any of the movies, he's like Santa Claus or King Kong, to quote New Nightmare specifically. Um, And so I was aware of what Freddy was, and I was terrified of that concept. But I didn't really visit the first movie, which was the first one I saw, until I was a teenager and I knew friends who loved the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and I just sheepishly admitted I hadn't seen any. And what's so interesting is really that first one especially is a very sort of naturalistic horror movie. It's weird, this would obviously go so cartoony with the rest of the series, but the first one feels like a very genuine sort of like suburban neighborhood being attacked by a malicious spirit that's been, like, sort of haunting the entire town for ages. And it still really holds up. I still would say it's the best one of the franchise. 
Freddie had personality in the first one, a lot of personality. They tried to overdo it with his personality. Once you make Freddy Krueger not scary anymore, then you kind of lose the whole uh, franchise, in my opinion. He, he basically turned into, like, Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> like, he gradually became a commercial mascot further and further. Dream Master looks like a fucking commercial. Like, the entire yes. movie is basically like a late 80s TV commercial through and through, sponsored by Freddy. Absolutely. Especially the beach scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, after the first film, I feel like three is the is the best sequel in my opinion. Part two is close to my heart as well. I love that movie. But as it progresses after four, that's the point where Freddy Krueger became too cartoonish and there was nothing really scary about him. Um, and it started in part four a lot with um, the direction of that. And that was by the director who did uh, Die Hard 2. Yeah, Randy Harlan, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it had that, you know, action movie vibe to it. Um, I liked it when I was a kid because I thought it was cool, um, you know, seeing all these spectacular effects. But as I'm older, I appreciate their earlier films a lot more, especially one, two, and three. Um, once we get into five and six, it's just full on cartoon. And um, I, I like him to be still sadistic and still saying like all of his one liners, but not be full on cartoon um, and not have, uh, you know, really bright light shining on him like in. Uh, part six in Freddy's Dead. Yeah, I think that's as good as a point as I need to actually transition into our two movies, because if you're new to Double Edge, Double Bill, uh, at the end of our last episode, we did some random picking where um, I had two bad movies that were in this franchise, and Adam had two good ones, and what we ended up with was uh, two films that followed each other very closely, the sixth and seventh entries in this franchise, with first, uh, we're going to talk about Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Uh, which is our first pick from 1991, our bad pick, um, and then we'll transition into our good pick, which was part seven, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which came out in 1994. But let's uh, let's get up to all the plastic, shiny wonderfulness of uh, Freddy's Dead. As a boy, he was always different, but now it's a new beginning, the beginning of the end for Freddy. Every town has an Elm Street. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. <laughs> now I'm playing with power. What's with kids today, huh? Freddy's dead. The final nightmare. They saved the best for last. So yeah, Freddy's dead. The final nightmare uh, came out September 13th, 1991. Oh, Friday the 13th. How spooky. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and it was uh, directed by Rachel Talalay, who interestingly was with the franchise from the start. She was originally a uh, production manager on the first two movies, and then was a line producer on Dream Warriors, and then became a producer full-fledged on uh, 4 and 5. And uh, she actually directed some other stuff after this, including a lot of really great episodes of the recent Doctor Who series, particularly with Peter Capaldi, a lot of great episodes from that show. Um, and this was New Line Cinema, which was famously called The House That Freddy Built, because when um, that came out in 84, uh, Bob Shea, who created New Line, uh, basically got his uh, studio to 
go from like a very minor, minor independent studio into being one of the many majors of sorts of that time. Um, they had gone through five Nightmare movies and then realized, you know what, we're running out of steam with Freddy. Let's just make it all out and kill Freddy Krueger. And uh, they did, wink, wink, uh, mm. with um, what is quite frankly a live action cartoon and uh, not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I think, is this the worst one? Yep. yep. Yes. Even yes. In, even including the remake? Yes. Okay. We're all in agreement, then. That's great. <laughs> I fucking hate this movie. Thank it, you. It's, oh, it's so unbelievably bad. All around. The way it's lit, the way it's shot, the way it's directed, the way the characters are, the actors, everything. Nothing for me in this movie works. Not a single fucking thing. Except Freddy's daughter as a little girl. Spoiler alert. She's adorable. Arnett? Yeah, I'm good. Alice Cooper, too. Yeah, why not? (laughs) The only cameo that might somewhat work, I guess. Arguably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is Desmond about to like entertain like come on guys, Tom Earl and Roseanne. So great. Oh, I love seeing this no. no. Oh my oh. god. Yeah, I, I echo everything that you just said, Adam. Fuck this movie. Uh I had to split this up over two sessions because I was watching it last night and I fell asleep in the middle of it. Um and then I finished watching it today and it was just like oh my god this is such a struggle to watch this is so terrible and again I remember seeing this in theaters opening weekend I was so excited and I was super bummed oh Oh, wow no this was my least favorite as a kid I I hated it Um, and I was so let down between this and Jason Takes Manhattan like the late 80s for me with my slashers, I was I was kind of broken. Well, especially it's weird because this is like technically early 90s and this was at a point where the slasher was like long dead because that started around like the mid 80s. It was starting to like go into decline. And then by this point, it's pretty much just like Freddy's like one of the last vestiges of it. that's still kind of crawling around just because of the sort of IP angle of it. And this is definitely full-fledged, we're not in slasher territory anymore. We have this big opening sequence that is a series of Freddy imitates the Wicked Witch of the West, followed by the don't nobody scream while the boss is in motion, like all this other stuff. Um, This is full-fledged, like, what everybody thinks of Freddy Krueger to this point. It's just like, oh, he is a mascot for horror more than he is any kind of, like, actual menacing killer. You could, I would argue, maybe be able to make some kind of, like, fun, like, meta-contextual interesting movie out of this kind of conceit of doing, like, we're gonna go full-fledged cartoon weird dream logic movie out of Freddy Krueger. The problem is this movie wants to kind of, like, have its cake and eat it, too, where it's like, we're gonna do that, but we're also gonna mix it up with, like, this whole mystery about Freddy's kid, because it's initially this John Doe dude who we think, oh, it's his son, and then eventually, oh, no, actually, the psychiatrist lady who's in the Springwood that is completely absent of children, except for these wayworld children who were suddenly involved, um, is actually his daughter. And there's a lot of creepy stuff about like spousal abuse and with another character, like uh, child molestation and some other stuff. It's like, it doesn't fit at all. This is such a complete mess of a movie that I'm not sure like what the fuck they were even going for at all. 
No, and the thing is, like, the, even the serious part with, like, the child abuse and everything is almost played for laughs. And it, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, don't get me wrong. Billy Zane in a wig does all right. I mean, she tries. But <laughs> it, it's... I mean, dude, she looks exactly like him. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Lisa Zane, who is the sister of Billy Zane. Um, they look. There's a family resemblance. That's that's very uh-huh. clear. <laughs> but what a fucking cheap tactic! It's just. It, I hate you, Thomas, for picking this fucking movie. <laughs> well, you know, we had to really go with, like, the lowest of the low, I would argue. And this is easily the lowest of the low, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, especially since so much of it is a bad comedy, like, all the laughs are so oh. poor. Like, you, you don't laugh at it. I think especially the, like, complete bottoming out is really the Breckenmeyer video game sequence is, like, oh. one of the worst things oh. I've ever seen a big-budget studio movie. Because it's this series of, like, just random ideas about, like, this is what the MTV generation wants, let's just throw this at him. That's what it feels like. This feels like Studio Notes the movie. The whole fucking movie. Oh, absolutely. Now we're playing with power. Great graphics. Oh, stop. Stop. This is what the kids like. They like Tiger Electronics, and they like Power Gloves. And they like, nobody liked the Power Glove, and nobody ever liked Tiger Electronics. Stop it. It's 40 to 50-year-old men in suits set in a room like, this is what teenagers are into. What? The, this, what? Wizard of Oz? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. This is just pure garbage. And the makeup on Robert England is a... Terrible. Oh, my God. It looks like the shit you buy at, like, a Walgreens burn yeah. man vas- mask. <laughs> not, not even the officially licensed Warner Brothers ones. No, yeah, it's like burned man. <laughs> you know, if you put it on. That's this makeup. It's horrible. He looks like an action figure. He just looks like no, they just put the, the action figure in stop motion and just made it into fucking Freddy. Which is a bummer, because I would argue at least that even as terrible as this movie is, Robert England's just kind of desperately clawing and trying to make this work, and he just can't. He's just too, like, <laughs> committed an actor to not realize this is all bullshit. Yeah, he's gonna do whatever they tell him to do. I mean, he loves the character, he loves the source material. I mean, it's not really up to him what happens, unfortunately. I mean, but he just wants to keep playing the character because he loves it. But, good God. To piggyback off of the whole, the, the makeup part, it's, it's also so badly lit that... It, it, you can tell that it's fake. And to me, it just makes me think of, okay, little kids love Freddy, so let's make Freddy more accessible and not make him so scary. And so he's more like a Saturday morning cartoon. Even though he's a child murderer and it's alluded to, especially in the first film, that he's a child molester and you're trying to make him more accessible to kids in this film and... It doesn't work, and I don't really get why they had Rachel Talalay direct this film as her first film, because the direction in this film is just god-awful. But I I can see how her 
type is this type of aesthetic works well for television because it just does feel like a television show. Well, especially finding out through if you've never seen it, the big Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, Never Sleep Again, which is a which great, is fantastic. Like, yeah, four oh, hours yeah. just yeah. like detailing the production of every single movie. They talk about the fact that a lot of the crew was actually from John Waters movies because she also produced Crybaby amongst a few mm-hmm. other John Waters movies, and you can tell that like this is people who think they know what camp is but they have no idea how that actually works. Right. It's not that they don't know how camp works. It's that camp doesn't apply to this idea. They try. I mean, they make this movie campy, but when you set it against the backdrop of a child murdering, molesting dream demon, it just comes off stupid. I think it would work better, though, if you just completely ignored trying to cover any sort of serious aspect of Freddy's backstory, which they emphasize on in a really weird move, like, hey, let's make our big show-stopping climax 3D sequence revolve around the history of this, like, child-molesting killer. (laughs) Like, the entire, like, all the the playbook of, like, all the serial killer bullshit. I'm just like, oh, um, he killed small pets, check. He had an abusive dad, check. In the same movie where, not 30 minutes ago, he has a bed of nails that he puts underneath somebody who's falling like he's Bugs Bunny. So it's just like, Uh. it's tonal whiplash to the point where your neck will, like, snap in two or five pieces by the end of it. It's so much tonal whiplash all over the place. Yeah, dude, he's Wile E. Coyote half the fucking movie. I have no problem with taking franchises in different directions. You know, a lot of times it doesn't work, sometimes it really does. But I appreciate the effort. And I do like the idea that they threw Rachel Talley a bone. She's been on it since the beginning. So, you know, hey, why don't you direct it? Great. But for such a paramount idea that this movie was supposed to be, I mean, the death of Freddy Krueger, you're six movies in. It's a huge franchise. Maybe do it with somebody who not only, A, appreciates the films before it, but B, will honor the idea. Like, it's a little late in the game to be like, oh, I'm going to make it something completely different that's come before and it's the last one. Well, it feels almost like they kind of picked her because of, like, throwing a a bone of, like, hey, you get to direct this now, but also at the same time, but we're going to totally take advantage of your inexperience. Because it it definitely feels like it's just, they didn't give her any kind of voice, which is, it's a shame she's the only female director of any of these movies, and you have a really cool idea of, hey, the daughter of Freddy Krueger, who's been, like, separated from this whole time, now has to face off against him. That's a really cool idea. But they completely sideline it and Lisa, the Lisa Zane character in general for all these elaborate set pieces that we've been referencing, like the Breck and Meyer one or the um, even the Carlos one, which I would argue... Oh, God. I'd argue that kind of has the most interesting kind of, like, idea about it, of taking advantage of, like, this character who's deaf and his, like, oversensitive hearing... I think that's an interesting concept. It's just, once again, very cartoonish in its execution. And it's just kind of played for all these, like, really lame gags. Um, and th- that's the thing. It's just, like, it feels so much like, hey, we want to just kind of emphasize fully on let's have all these, like, big set pieces that feel like little commercials, little vignettes, and not actually have any kind of a story whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I think I actually do agree, too, with the Carlos thing. You know, nice hearing from you, Carlos. Really stupid. But I do like the idea that Freddy's playing on his vulnerabilities. He, he, ultimately, you don't give a shit. I mean, do you? Do you really care? <laughs> it's systematic of a lot of things so that we're developing even from, like, four. Especially, I agree with Desmond said earlier. From Dream Master on, it is just, like, all of these, like, characters who 
are maybe not the most developed characters like the earlier movies, but at the very least felt like kind of like real or somewhat interesting kids have been turned into, you have two traits, and Freddy's going to emphasize on at least one of them for the dream later right. on. And this is like that to the umpteenth degree. Oh, yeah, 100%. These are, these are literally just body count actors. That's the whole point. And that's not what the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is about. Um, when you look at Friday the 13th, especially, that's all about body count. With, with Nightmare, I feel like because the, the first three films especially played it a lot more, a lot more darker, um, and they really handled the themes of uh, being, being a teenager, not feeling like you belong, and also the theme of teenage suicide really well in those two films, especially in the 80s. You know, it's, our, our mindset about those things were very different back then. With this film, it almost feels like disrespectful to those earlier films that really set up the character, the um, the struggle between the kids that are being victimized by him because of the sins of their parents um, through their dreams where they're, they're most vulnerable. And in this film, it just shits all over it. And you have this asshole John Doe being introduced who I can't fucking stand and it just it just shits on the franchise there's nothing that I can find of value at all in this movie there's nothing good about it and Robert England can be good in anything he's good in the mangler and the mangler is a piece of shit but you know no matter how much you try you can't polish up this turd and it's a fucking turd Kids, am I right? Fuck. <laughs> 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 no, I totally agree with what Desmond's talking about because, like, the, what's so ingenious about the first Nightmare on Elm Street is it's about these kids who find a connection with each other but are constantly alienated by adults around them who, as it turns out, are alienating them because they feel so guilty about like these sins coming back and they're feeling like, nope, I, I can't even acknowledge it whatsoever. This is just something random that's happening. It has nothing to do with my past actions. And you would figure, once again, with the whole, like, Freddy and his daughter thing, that's, like, the perfect potential to, like, have all of those themes come home to roost. And, once again, it's just kind of done, like, well, we'll toss it off as we give this big 3D, like, climax, which is incredibly lazy, especially to the point where Yafet Kodo, who, by the way, is in this movie, it so sucks that he's doing nothing. It's awesome. Oh. Ask you fed Kodo, and he's just like, yeah, if I'm in a sweater, I'm just hanging out here. Hey, put on these 3D glasses. You can do anything with them in the dream, I guess. And I'll tell you this. It, it was lame then as well. Watching this with my parents and my older brother, we put on those glasses, and I was stoked. I was excited for what they were going to do. And when it was done, it was like, wait, that's it? Like, his head just explodes, and goes into itself over and over again. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty bad. I don't know what else we have to say about it. Maybe we go into final thoughts at this point. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. uh, yeah, this it's, uh, it's, it's everything that's bad. So, uh, Desmond, your final thoughts on Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Uh, fuck this movie. Uh, <laughs> it's just... It's just not good. It's lazy. It to to what you guys were saying earlier. It it feels like a bunch of suits 
in her room, came up with an idea and gave it to an inexperienced director who was just so excited to be on a project and be the director that she just fell in line. Um, and, you know, not to shit on her too much, but this shouldn't have been given to her. This should have been given to a director who had a bit more experience. But knowing how Bob Shea was and is, he liked to find a director that was the cheapest and that would do the most work for as little money as possible. Um, so, yeah, my, my rating would be fuck this movie. We don't usually do ratings, but that's a pretty accurate rating. Um, just, just fuck this movie. By the way, speaking of Bob Shea, um, he has a cameo in like all these movies. This is easily the worst one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where it's just like, oh, dude, get a ticket for the boss. <laughs> He's got the Freddy glove on. It's like, oh, it's pretty bad. Uh, Adam, your final thoughts on this movie? Uh, this is easily my least favorite film in all of the horror slasher franchises. I think this is just pure, unintelligible shit. I think it offers nothing to the source material and only detracts from the entire picture as a whole. Uh, There's no redeemable part of this movie. It's not funny. It's not scary. It's not well-directed. It's not well-shot. The makeup's terrible. The effects are awful. It's it's just a really, really, really shit-fest of a film. Yeah, and it's one that I've seen get a bit more slack where people say, well, it's terrible, but it's no Dream Child or some people say Freddy's Revenge or some of these other things. But even at some of their worst, like I have a lot of issues with a Dream Child, but that at the very least is kind of doing a bit more ambitious, interesting ideas in concept, um, as opposed to this is just completely, as you mentioned, devoid of any real vision or cohesion or anything much of interest. It just is. It's a movie where they don't know what to do. So it's like, hey, let's slide out a cameo. Hey, let's slide out this cool visual thing that's a reference to you know whatever thing kids like at the time. Let's toss out these references to Freddy's past and all this other stuff. It just feels like it's a grab bag of various different ideas. I would say it's definitely one of the worst examples of the trope of flanderization, which is basically, hey, let's take this character who initially started off with like an interesting kind of fun trait. Um, we kind of played on a bit and completely play it out as time goes along. And this is like the bottom of the barrel for Freddy Krueger for sure. Even as bad as that remake is, um, at least Jackie Earl Haley is trying a bit more than I would say Robert Englund is. Uh, that's about the best you can give him. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yes. I agree. That's about the best you can say. And now here's a show on the ESO network that you can be listening to right now. On the last episode of the Nerdy Laser Podcast, Richard and Isaac found themselves in a highly secured government facility. Richard, what are we going to do? Isaac, the only thing we can do. You you don't mean... Yes, talk about movies, pop culture, and the nerdy stuff we love. Right on! The Nerdy Laser Podcast is available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and the ESO Network. Let's go to somebody taking the reins of the franchise back and doing something very interesting with it with uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Coming from New Line Home Video, from Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, comes a new dimension in terror. Miss me. Almost there. Heather Langenkamp, John Saxon, and Robert Englund. Ever played in the cat. 
Wes Craven's new nightmare. This time, staying awake won't save you. Meet your maker. So, uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare, the seventh entry in the franchise, came out October 14th, 1994, celebrating the 10th anniversary at that time of the franchise, and features the return of Wes Craven to the director and writer's chair, after he had directed and written the first movie, and written at least the initial drafts of Dream Warriors, the third film. And I would say, uh, with this franchise, a sort of essential trilogy... I would argue is definitely that first one, Dream Warriors, and New Nightmare. And I think a lot of that has to do with Wes Craven, being the guy who created Freddy, um, had the most interesting sort of twists and turns of where to take the character to some extent. Because with those three movies, you get the initial start of Freddy, the darker start. Then you get something that's a bit of a balance between his darker roots and the more comedic turns he would take, but actually kind of still worked. And then New Nightmare is really taking that conceit of, like, oh, Freddy has become so tired out at this point that we have to take a very meta-contextual version of what we do with the character, and uh, doing a pretty amazing job with it, and very innovative for the time. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, that's why I chose this one. And, hey, I mean, dude, I love the look of Freddy in this movie. It's so good. It's such a different and fresh approach that has really never been taken in any of these franchises before. To look at it like, all right, look, this is what we did. This is how big it got. Now we're going to change everything we've already done. What if this was actually real because we all believed it and followed it and it made so much money and all became this thing? So now this this real evil is taking on this personification of something that we all recognize and cherish and love. And this is what's going to happen. It's so different and original and cool. It's very much taking sort of like that sins of the father approach of the original mm-hmm. movie and putting it literally in the hands of the audience. Like, you are the person who sinned and created this monster, <laughs> pretty much, by making Freddy so beloved. Which, especially, like, one of my favorite scenes in any of these movies is the whole talk show bit, where you see Freddy come out. It's very much typical of, like, what you would have oh, seen yeah. in, like, the late 80s, early mm-hmm. 90s. And just putting as like, this is, like, oh, this fun thing that you watched as a kid, like, oh, look, Freddy's on a talk show. And really, it's like, oh, this is like feeding the flames of demons that actually populate the world and actually end up murdering people. Right, and it, and it's fucked up because it's a bunch of kids wearing the masks and shit, and they all get excited for them. Yeah. Where it's, I mean, dude, the basis of this character is, that's pretty dark. So, so Desmond, I know based on our previous talks, you're a big Wes Craven fan. What are your feelings on New Nightmare, and where would you put it amongst the franchise? Yeah, I I love Wes Craven, and even when he's misfired in a film, there's something about his dedication to the craft, and he's a director that I really admire, because you can tell how much he loves the horror genre, and how he tries something different every single time he makes a film. And I find that so admirable. And in this film, um, although not my favorite in the franchise, it's probably like middle of the pack is where I'd put it. Um, I still like it and I still enjoy it. I find that this film was really cool about the time that it came out because it came out two years before Scream came out. So we're getting this whole meta aspect to horror and talking about those horror tropes and who Freddy was originally and what he's become and why he's not scary anymore. And I also feel like it's like a post-mortem as well on uh, a horror and, and especially slashers of the mid to late 80s and early 90s and 
kind of a soft reset in a way for slashers and horror films. Of course, the big reset was Scream that basically said, hey, everyone, you need to up your game. Um, but I, I, I felt like this was what the franchise needed um, because especially after part five, um, the series really lost its touch and it lost everything that the franchise was about. And and what Adam was saying earlier about even like part three, he has some of his lines, his quippy lines, but there's still that sense of like this, he's dangerous. He's going to fucking kill you and he's frightening. I mean, there's that whole puppet piece in Dream Warriors part, you know, in part three where he's using a guy as a puppet. Like that's horrifying. And we lost all that as, as the, as the franchise went along. And so it was good, you know, especially for me seeing this, um, in 94, I saw it with my mom when it came out. We were so happy after we watched this because it was like a return to form of what Nightmare on Elm Street and what Freddy used to be and especially what Slashers used to be. I completely agree with it being a really much like a sort of eulogy for the slasher genre because this was around the time when it was just like pretty much dead unless it was like some bad, like almost straight to video quality. And this is around the same time as like Halloween 6. The slasher genre is a shambling corpse that's still just kind of existing. And this feels very much like a passing of a torch where it's like, okay, these traditional slashers are very much dead, so let's do something very different with it. And to Adam was talking earlier about the redesign of Freddy. I very much agree with like the redesign where he looks a lot more like he's not so much a burn victim as much as like he's the sort of cracks that happen in his face are sort of part of the original mm -hmm. design anyway. It's like he is the sort of demon that's almost trying to get out of his human form. And that even works with, like, Robert England's performance, where this is the scariest Freddy, I would argue. Oh, yeah, no. In terms of, like, out. he feels like a malicious, animalistic character, who even, like, the few lines he says are almost him grasping at straws of humanity to, to like, try and, like, somewhat seem human, when really he's just, like, this animalistic murderer. Especially with, like, my favorite scene of the whole movie is the sort of version they do of the Tina death from the original. Yes. Where it's it's such a great example of like how to sort of do a homage or a nod where it's like, oh, this remember this horrible, violent murder, but the whole thing was, oh, you didn't see the killer? In this case, we're going to see the killer grab this girl and put her around the room, upside down on the ceiling, but it's going to feel like a literal murderer is dragging this woman <laughs> across the fucking ceiling, and it's right. disturbing. It's unsettling. It is, but Miko Hughes, good lord. He kind of shits the bed. <laughs> like he, he, he literally looks like he's making a poopy pants face in, in that yeah. scene. Like, I, I agree that he's probably the biggest issue I have with the movie. Um, he's always been, even... I mean, Miko Hughes, of course, you would recognize from Pet Cemetery, where, of course, that worked because he was, like, a year and a half year old. He didn't really have so much of, like, awkward kid acting, as opposed to here, there's a lot of points where it's, um, especially him trying to be possessed... By Freddy, like there's that point where he does the, like never sleep oh. again, and he sounds like Donald yeah. Duck. <laughs> <laughs> that that's the problem with child actors. You never really know what you're gonna get with the child actor, and if they're gonna be able to hit the mark. And he he feels uneven, but it's like I'm I'm able to give him more slack because he is a kid. Um, thankfully, Heather Langenkamp is in the film and I don't care what anyone says 
I know that she gets some shit for the first Nightmare on Elm Street and that her acting is bad. I think that she was great in that movie. I thought she was great in part three. And I think she's great in this movie. Um, And it's just, it's so nice to see her in a Nightmare on Elm Street film again with Wes Craven. And you see her with Robert England and John Saxon, things like that. Those are the things that, you know, overshadow um, some of the aspects that, aren't so good. Well, even then, I really love the scenes where it's like her and Miko Hughes together talking. Like, there's a bit where he just talks about, why does God have bad things happen? She just very plainly says, I honestly don't know. Like, it's just, it, it feels like a very naturalistic thing. Of, obviously, she's playing herself, but it feels very naturalistic of, like, just a mother trying to communicate to their child about, like, look, I don't know. Like, I, I'm a human, honestly. <laughs> like, I, I the, the, there's that whole thing when you're a kid where it's like, oh, my parents are, like, super powered and they can protect me from anything. And this is really about a mother trying to hold up that shield, but realizing, like, I can only do so much. I still am human, ultimately. And I think that, that connection really works. And I do agree. I think this is her strongest performance. Not just because she's playing herself, but there's a lot of natural moments that I think work really well. It's what I liked about her in the original movie, she felt like a very familiar, awkward teenager. I think that's kind of what some people criticize, what I think is a strength, is that she feels very awkward in a traditional teenage way. Versus here, this feels like a woman who has dealt with Freddy her entire life, and it's just something she kind of gotten used to. Like, my, I love the bit where after the talk show scene I talked about, Robert England is out signing autographs for kids, and she's in the doorway just like, I'm fucking tired, I want to leave. I'm so done with this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm going to go ahead and disagree with both of you there. Okay. As much as I like Heather <laughs> Langkamp, I think she's fucking terrible as an actress. I like her. I love Nan- the character of Nancy. I-, I do like her in the original, but I think she's awful in this movie. I absolutely think she's awful. I think she like she's completely wooden. It feels like she's reading off cue cards for me the whole time. See, I feel that way more about uh, Dream Warriors, actually. She's kind of in that awkward phase where she's not too far removed from, like, the teenager she was in the first movie. But she doesn't feel like the adult I think she ultimately feels like in this one here. I think that's the most wooden where it doesn't quite work for me. Um, As opposed to here, I think it feels a lot more sort of thing. I think it's because she's playing a version of herself. I think it feels a lot more just like an exasperated person who's dealt with so much bullshit. And then, especially all the shit she goes through at this in this entire movie. Um, if anything, the few moments where it feels kind of awkward for me are just moments that feel traditional to, like, Wes Craven, like, issues I have. Where it's like, I love Wes Craven's movies, a lot of them. But at the same time, like, why does he have to always have, like, a climax that involves, like, hand-to-hand combat when he can't do hand-to-hand combat very well? <laughs> I, I never get that. He does that all the time <laughs> in these fucking movies. And it's just, it feels like his sort of, like, go-to of, like, I don't know how to end this movie. Um, they punch each other. <laughs> well, I think his, I think the whole idea with him is he, he really gets into, with all of his movies and even interviews he's talked about, like, what the brutality of man versus man could be. So his whole idea is, you know, it's just going to be fists and your natural weapons that we've always had against each other to really, you know, prove a point. But yeah, he could not shoot a fight scene to save his fucking life. Yeah. With him, why the Scream franchise was so successful and why overall 
for the most part, all of those films are really good because someone else was writing and putting together how all of the structure was going to be. And then Craven was able to just focus on the direction. Yeah, he had his influences, but, you know, he had someone that was kind of guiding the ship in terms of the storyline is concerned. Um, I feel like when he's writing his own work, it's kind of hit or miss. But again, it's like I, I can't help but love Wes Craven because he had so much creativity, was willing to try new things and always try something different. You have a guy who does Last House on the Left and then does uh, Serpent and the Rainbow, which are both completely different films. Um, and w- with this film, I just I, I admire the fact that that he tried something different and and wanted to see what he could do with doing this kind of postmortem on slasher films and kind of usher in a new a new generation of slashers and horror in general. Which isn't it funny, Wes Craven uh, single-handedly deconstructed and killed the original slasher boom and then single-handedly revitalized it again with Scream. This was the send-off of the 80s slasher movies and then he reopened the door again two years later. It's pretty much passing the baton off with this one. To himself! Yep. <laughs> From the left hand to the right hand. Yep. That's how fucking good he was. Yeah. He was an he was a master horror director. I mean, he really was. Now, I agree with Thomas and, and of course, with you, Desmond, as well. There are certain certain of his movies that I'm like, eh, you know, like Hills Have Eyes. He's got some just genuine, genuine classics that will always be remembered. That's how good he was. You get right down to that with another, I think, a great scene in this movie, which involves Wes Craven himself, where he's talking to Heather Leggenkamp. But just like, well, you know, I've been writing the screenplay, and it's kind of like diverged so much of my time and attention. I think that's what's keeping the demon at bay is writing this. And it literally it's just him saying, so will you play Nancy one last time? And then looking at the screenplay, like, word processor, and it literally is saying the ex- it has the exact same dialogue as they're saying it, down to a fade to black, and it fades out completely. <laughs> like, that's ingenious, just in terms of just how... He's really playing with, like, so many different levels. And even just the weird thing of, like, how this movie kind of bled into reality in a literal sense, where the whole recurring thing about, oh, the earthquakes are happening, and this movie occurs during the big Northridge earthquake. Like, pretty much right after they're done with principal photography, the big Northridge earthquake happens in, like, early 94, and they have a second unit team shoot a bunch of stuff where you see the damage of it. It just, it's this weird, almost cosmic, universal way of saying the movie in of itself is actually like kind of fulfilling its promise of like really blurring the lines between reality and fiction. And I, I think that just, again, goes to show what an ultimate opportunist he also was as a director. I mean, to take something like that and just make it work for this story, I mean, it's, it's almost a masterful stroke. To me, there's almost no better modern horror director of his time. I mean, the guy, he was so intelligent, so smart, and such a good director. To take the character that you created that made you who you are and to completely flip it on its head and turn it and still produce something of this quality, I don't know anybody else who could do that. Is there a specific example in this in New Nightmare that kind of really emphasizes that point to you, Adam, that we haven't mentioned maybe? Well, the fact that he goes back with, you know, John Saxon. And with, you know, Heather Langkamp and then has her in the same clothes and in the same bed and everything else. 
and Freddie comes out, peels out of the sheets. And by the way, Rex, what a cool idea. But just the fact that he goes, and then he goes full nine with it, where they end up in this fucking crazy skull dungeon or whatever the hell you want to call it. And he just goes for broke with it. And yet you completely appreciate, understand, and believe it. Like, yeah, this totally makes sense. He, he just understands his source material, A, because he created it, but he appreciates what he's already done, pays respect to it, and also says, well, now I'm going to do it this way. This is my baby. I am changing it. But for all of you who belong for the ride, I'm going to throw these little bones in for you. Yeah, and it, it definitely feels like a definitive end to the franchise, whereas Freddy's Dead just felt like, okay, what what the fuck was that? Like, that didn't feel like an, a proper ending. With this film, with a New Nightmare, it feels like the proper send-off for A Nightmare on Elm Street and for the character of Freddy Krueger. As you were talking about Wes Craven and how intelligent he was, um, as I was watching this movie, and especially when he's on screen talking, I missed him so much. I was just getting really nostalgic watching this, where it was like, man... That's one of the greats that we lost, and he's made so many incredible films. Um, And even though I'm not the biggest fan of Last House on the Left, I still appreciate it because it was his first film, and he tried something. He tried something different. Watching this made me appreciate him even more. Well, and I think a lot of that comes to the fact that he started so late in his career because, like, he didn't do Last House on the Left until what he was like in his like late 30s, right? Yeah, he's so. like 36 or 37. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was like well into like a more mature state at that point. And plus, he grew up like a very devout Christian. Like he was going to become a pastor mm-hmm. like at a certain mm-hmm. point. He was incredibly intelligent. Right. He was a teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. so he saw The Virgin Springs was like, you know what? I'm going to make this a horror film. The tagline alone has become so iconic for that movie. Yes. Keep repeating it, yourself. It's right. only a movie. It's, it's only ve- a movie. It's very That's... clear we need to do a Wes Craven episode at some point. But to get back to New Nightmare. <laughs> no, um, man. Specific... Don't, don't you do that. Not <laughs> you, Thomas. <laughs> Before we start really dealing out the music of the heart here, as it were. Um, I, I... Ah! Well, Street. <laughs> What, what's what's so interesting, especially with like this movie and how he's playing into, especially a lot of the religious aspects, is this feels very much like a movie about losing your faith, and not necessarily like literal faith in God, as much as like faith in like your own faculties and reality, and how when you work in like a an industry that's so very much based on, hey, let's just throw out fiction, let's throw out like all sorts of stuff to like really entertain audiences when that blurs so much, it feels like you don't really have a grasp on what it means to be human as exemplified by say, uh, Bob Shea appearing in this movie with the very awkward stilted delivery, which I kind of love in this movie. It's just like, come on, Heather, I love it. come on, Heather kids love horror. I love that. Oh. <laughs> Bob Shea. He, he wanted to be an actor so bad. Oh, you can tell. And meanwhile, his sister Lynn is the much better actor who appears again in this movie after being in the first yes. on the street. No, what I, what I will say about this film by itself is I do agree with what Desmond said to me, this is the proper send off for the Freddy character. I mean, they took it full circle. They, I don't think a, we didn't need the remake. I mean, stop. It was such a vapid piece of garbage. And Freddy vs. Jason is just a fucking fight movie. Amped up to it. I I know. (laughs) 
it's terrible. This should have been it, and it would have worked perfectly. I mean, I would definitely agree that this is the proper end to, like, Robert England and, like, that traditional version of the character, that series overall. I could still say, like, I wouldn't mind somebody actually with a creative vision taking on the Nightmare on Elm Street property, more so than any of the other slasher franchises where it's like, oh, we're going to bring back Michael Myers, and it's like, oh, he's going to do the same thing. But with Nightmare on Elm Street, I feel like that has the most potential to do something very different with the franchise. That's the the biggest bummer about that remake is just that they recreate so many scenes from the original movie, as opposed to just, like, really doing something unique with the Freddy Krueger character, who is so malleable, you can do so much with especially, like, modern, like, dream sequences you could do. Um, I'd almost love for them to do something similar to, like, I've been saying this since the Batman Arkham Asylum game came out. Uh, do something like those Scarecrow sequences. Really emphasize on, like, sort of Freddy 1, as... 1,000%, yes. Yeah, just emphasize yes. on Freddy being sort of, like, controlling the environment and really... I, I think there's a lot you can do, and you even mentioned, that, uh, Adam, that you uh, would prefer to do, uh, if they were to do it, to have um, the the particular actor that uh, Robert England suggested. For oh, yeah, Kevin mental. Bacon. Yeah. Bacon as Freddy Krueger would be fantastic. Man, he might be a little old now, uh, especially when you want to get longevity out of the character. But I think Kevin Bacon would be really, really good. Back when they were talking about the remake, I, you know, when they said Jekyll or Haley, or I was endorsing uh, fucking Billy Bob Thornton, to be honest. Skinny Billy Bob, creepy, weird, with his and- fucking soul patch. Come on, that's scary enough as it is. <laughs> This is my soul patch. (laughs) (laughs) And that remake single-handedly almost made Rooney Mara quit acting because the experience was completely awful. But back to uh, New Nightmare, I wanted to bring up how um, Nico is in the hospital and the – that doctor – keeps mentioning about how Heather Langenkamp is in all of those films and these violent movies. I – really appreciated the commentary of violence in media and how there are certain people who try to blame violence on television or movies or video games. And I, I like that he brought that up, that Craven brought up like trying to insinuate that she somehow has failed as a parent because she's in these violent films. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting commentary you know, just showing that kind of moral panic that people have had about horror films. And especially with uh, Wes Craven making that commentary about censorship, who he's had to deal with tons of censorship in his films, especially um, in the Scream movies. So I, I just, I really appreciated that whole angle that he took. I mean, to quote that series, movies don't make psychopaths, they just make them more creative. (laughs) <laughs> right which by the way mvp of the movie goes to that doctor especially when she like has when the glove pops up it's just like we have to make a quick cut <laughs> going forward has yeah. he seen your film <laughs> oh yes yes i love this lady i will say my one sort of issue with the movie that i apparently they wrote this in at some point but i, I it's kind of a bummer no actual scene where robert england himself encounters freddie yeah that's like the one really big missed opportunity. You know, I never thought of that, dude. Yeah. But I agree. That would have played the meta aspect up to a fucking 10. Yeah. Yeah, Rod Wilson should have been killed on screen by Freddy. Especially if you almost played it off as like him as like the Freddy's Dead version of Freddy. 
and how completely like, oh, destroyed so he gets fun. by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do? Even the painting that he's doing is like, you know, just so dark, and it so shows all those souls, and you know, kind of fretty, uh, you know, holding all of these souls captive. I love that that visual and that imagery, and it it also just gives you a little hint of of what's going to happen later in the film. Yes, but we could go on and on about New Nightmare. I think it's time we got to our final thoughts then here. Desmond, your final thoughts on Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I think that this is a a, a really good movie. It's not the best uh, Nightmare movie, but it's still very good. It's Wes Craven. You're always going to get something interesting out of him. Whether you like it or not, what he's doing on screen... There's a certain appreciation of his craft that is is there. Bringing back a lot of the original cast, and you see some of them at the funeral scene, um, which I, I I loved that. Just seeing some of the cast come back, and um, yeah, it's just it's a really great send off for the franchise for the character. Um, it really, like we were saying earlier, giving that post mortem about horror films and slashers, and kind of just saying okay. This is the end of that era. We need to to bookend that, move on, and usher in a new one, which would become Scream. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is one that I'd highly recommend, especially if you haven't revisited it again. It it still is is an enjoyable watch, um, and it's 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 got some some interesting things to say about uh, film, horror films, and media in general. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer that this ended up being the lowest grossing one of the whole Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I think just because it was too ahead of its time. Yeah, I can see that. But Adam, your final thoughts on New Nightmare. You know, New Nightmare is, is such a weird paradox of a film. If you want to see a, like we've already talked about, deconstruction of the slasher genre and a very smart film, this is it. But if you want to see a Freddy Krueger movie, it's also it. it, it it's very, very expertly done. Uh, I think it, the script is the smartest of the Nightmare scripts. Um, I just think it's damn near a perfect slasher sequel. To me, there there's so much in this that's enjoyable. There's things that you can pick apart, of course, but you can do that with any film. But I just think it's a very, very fun, smart, intelligent movie. And it's Wes Craven at the top of his game, especially considering the character. It's the baby he birthed, and it's the baby he's put into bed. And I think it's expertly, expertly done. I, I would give it a bit more praise in terms of the franchise lineup. This is my second favorite of the whole franchise. And with the other Nightmare on Elm Street movies, especially when I was wa- re-watching a bunch of them before we were doing this episode, um, those movies are definitely ones where it's like, I watch them, and I watch them for like, oh, here's this fun bit I remember, here's this bit. I know those movies very much by like set piece by set piece and how they go along. Versus with New Nightmare, what's so interesting is it feels refreshing every time I see it. It's the only one in this franchise where I feel like I gain something every time I watch it. It it feels like there's so much subtext that's going on here, and there's so many great, powerful emotional moments. Uh, There's a lot of great performances, I would argue, including Heather Langenkamp. I think it's definitely her highlight as an actress. Um, And at the same time, it's also, I think, very scary while being very, like, very heady in all of this. It is the scariest thing uh, Freddy's ever been. I really love, we didn't talk about that much, but the way his glove is designed to look like it's just a part of his actual being instead of, like, a glove. And how, like, it has, like, bones protruding and the actual knives are, like, growing out of his fingers. It's such a, like, weird, creepy, 
almost like fairy tale monster design, which this movie's building so much on, given the Handel and Gretel stuff. It's very much saying that Freddy Krueger, despite being an 80s pop culture invention, is so of, like, these various monsters we've been seeing throughout all of history. Freddy Krueger is like Santa Claus or King Kong, in that despite being a more relatively recent invention in the last 35 years, his visage is eternal in some form. And this is the movie that really cemented that, and I think I, I do agree. It is the great sort of bow on this entire franchise, uh, and one of the better slasher sequels. But that's the end of our discussion of our two films from the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. But, well, let's go ahead and get into our feedback, because we ask all of you every Monday uh, a feeler about, like, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite things about whatever topic we're doing? And so uh, we asked you all about Nightmare on Elm Street, and so we have some people's uh, feedback to read, including first that uh, James Rodriguez says, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors holds a very special place in my heart for being the first horror film I ever saw at the age of seven. Luckily, it still holds up as uh, one of the series' best entries, complete with the wicked death through the puppeteered veins. Um, I would also call Johnny Depp's demise in the first film and the skin the cat scene in New Nightmare some of the most disturbing deaths in the series. Uh, as for worse, Freddy's Dead is top contender, along with the cartoonish death of Breck and Meyer in this laughable video game set piece. Rafe Telsch says, uh, Dream Warriors is my favorite as it's the point where the series really developed its voice, transforming from horror stalker to camp. Uh, the television death in particular, welcome to primetime, bitch, is a favorite. Um, as for the downside, it doesn't get much worse than number two, a movie that ha was already bad, but has seemed to built up this unintended homoerotic overtone as time goes by. Nothing wrong with that, um, if they were going for it intentionally, but without developing it, it falls as flat as a porno intro scene. Scott Crawford says, I don't have one stand-up moment from either, uh, from any category, really, of, you know, best death scene or best film. Pretty much any time Freddy is on screen makes for an entertaining watch, no matter how bad the films get. The worst thing is the dream sequences always felt a little lackluster to me. Since he's a dream demon, you would think that the dream would be crazy and intense and otherworldly, but for the most part, they are pretty generic, though some of the kills are definitely innovative. Um, Shane Steele says, Favorite, the look-what-I-can-do finger slice, turning Giant Depp into a fountain of blood, and I'm your boyfriend now. Least favorite, Freddy exploding in 3D. Larry Sternshine um, at double H55 says, I hate most of Dream Child, but the motorcycle gag is pretty great. Burial Grid at Burial underscore Grid says, um, Kelly Rowland's character's homophobic contributions were definitely the low point of the series in Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, those claymation sleep demons were pretty insufferable too. And um, I would say, um, amongst all this feedback, the big thing uh, upon revisiting a lot of these movies is um, I would definitely disagree with Rafe about uh, Freddy's Revenge. I think that one is aged the best out of like so many of these other ones. Where when I was younger, I would say that one definitely didn't hold up very well. Part of that is I mean, like some societal homophobia that I've grown out of, thankfully. If anything, the homoerotic stuff has become more and more interesting as time has gone on. And I would argue so much more baked into the movie. Um, if anything else, what kind of sets that one to, like, not work as well is just some of the production value stuff. Like, say, the bit where the bird explodes is awkward, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I'd argue it's all very intentional as well. Mm -hmm. There's yes. no question that the, that the person who wrote that movie knew exactly what he was interjecting with that film. Yeah. And, yeah, I, and I think did. it makes Freddy a very much more interesting character, where gender doesn't matter to Freddy. It's all a seduction. It's all everything. He just wants 
children, which makes it way more creepier and way more dirty, too. I personally actually really like part two. There's a lot of shit in it that's stupid. Like, I don't like the whole barbecue pool scene, but there's a lot of good in Freddy, too. Well, plus, even in that sequence, I agree it's kind of, like, awkwardly staged, but at the same time, it has one of my favorite moments in the whole franchise where the barbecue pit is, like, burning up, and he's like, you are all my children now. That's an iconic Freddy moment, I would argue. Absolutely. They they redid it in New Nightmare. Yeah. And I like the makeup on Robert Englund in that one. He has that kind of witch look, and he just looks so gross and grimy and scary. I love the yellow (sighs) contacts in the eyes. It was really cool. As I've gotten older, I've grown to really love and appreciate uh, Freddy's revenge and is how, you know, Freddy is like a representation of repressed homosexuality. And it's Jesse letting that out. Um, And the way that the writer thought of it was like, oh, the only way to cure him is with this girl who tells him that she loves him and that true love wins over and he'll become straight. Um, That's going to that's going to fix him so he's not gay anymore. Um, And I just found that to be so interesting. And historically, that's worked. Right. (laughs) Right. If you just (laughs) if you just repress it and, you know, go along, it's going to be fine. You're going to be straight. Well, I would almost interpret it, I think especially upon this recent watch I had with it, it's more intended to be what you're talking about at the time. But I think with time, it's plays almost more as like, she is willing to accept Jesse for who he is and love him for who he is as a person, rather than the person who like everyone's trying to conflate him to be. The person, as you mentioned, that's so much more repressed, or in the case of Freddy, the person that he's trying to completely manipulate in order to get into the real world. The, you know, the child who is completely unsure about their sexuality, who he's trying to prey on, and I think that's it, that it plays a lot more, I think, in that more interesting identity aspect to me now, in, uh, in a modern context. And plus, I think it's also the last time Freddy was truly just straight up scary. Like in that movie, it feels so. He feels the most like a predator on a sexual level in a really disturbing way in that one. Oh, absolutely! And when he, dude, just the practical effect alone when he comes out of Jesse's body is one of the best practical effects in the franchise. Yeah, I, I think uh, maybe Rafe needs to give it another watch. As should anybody yeah. out there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe look at it with a set of new eyes or. You know, appreciate the uh, subtext, and uh, it's actually a really good, smart, kind of ahead of its time film. What are some other moments that we really like from this franchise we haven't talked about, given our two films? What are some other ones that uh, maybe were mentioned or hadn't been mentioned that uh, really stick out amongst the other entries? The Puppet Kill, part three. Oh, it's so gross and good. Oh, I love that. That... That one gave me so many nightmares. Him laying in the bed, Freddy cutting himself down from his little puppet, you know, thing, uh, from his strings. Then he becomes bigger and then just slices open dudes like veins. And it's just making him walk around like a puppet. And you just, you see the pain on that kid's face and the music. Oh, fucking awesome. That's why I think when I rewatched it, I dislike dream master so much more is they introduce all these cool characters of the dream warriors in three and they're all dead by not even the halfway point of dream master and so unceremonious yeah 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 i will say though all of tina in the first movie is fantastic from her death 
to her being in the body bag in the hallway with the bugs coming out of her mouth and bleeding from the eyes and being dragged down the hallway. How fucking terrifying. Yeah, especially when you're like in the, the shoes of uh, Jesus Garcia, where you're just like watching yeah. all this happen. That's so terrifying. Oh, yeah. And it's a perfect, almost like Alfred Hitchcock's psycho moment. Yes. Where you expect Tina to be the hero of the whole movie, and he just mm-hmm. fucking brutally wastes her in the first 20 minutes. And then, of course, Johnny Depp, being sucked into the bed, and I love the callback with Joey on the waterbed in part four, even though I agree, they killed Joey and Kincaid and everything in part four so fucking fast. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'm still pissed off by how they killed off Kincaid. That's the moment where the franchise takes a dark turn for me, yeah. where it's like, fuck you, Kincaid's awesome, and how yeah, dare you do that to him? Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> and Joey was cool too. With the, I mean, where his voice was his weapon, and then you see him far forward, and he's just talking like a normal dude. You're like, well, I guess you're fucking dead. Yeah. <laughs> and no, Dr. Patricia Arquette. I was about to say, yeah. Tuesday night was okay. Yeah, nothing against her. Like she did her best, being dropped in the middle of a film where Kincaid and Joey are there, and they're not happy that it's Tuesday night. They have become really close with Arquette. And I think that she may have been pregnant during the film. That was the reason, yeah. The girl who became the main one's brother in part four. Oh, uh, oh the fucking the kung fu. And his kill was so lame. So bad. So lazy. <laughs> and then the nerd girl, what a suck face. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Rick, you little meatball. Uh, I love soul food. <laughs> 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 That's one of my favorite really bad Freddy lines. I wanted to ask, um, so Adam, you've actually said this before. You yeah. have a bit more of a defense for Dream Child. It was your alternate pick for the good yeah. pick. You want to throw a bit of defense for that one? Sure. A, I love Stephen Hopkins directing for Dream Child. I think it's totally bizarre and weird. Almost like MC Escher sort of shots in it, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the stairs scene at the end. I love the idea that Freddy has come back by infecting an unborn child. What a cool, perverse, crazy idea. And it's one of the few that actually brings back characters from the sequel to the sequel, like from part four to part five. And most of them play, well, not most of them, but Dan and uh, whatever the hell her name is. now. I, I, don't I believe it's Alice. I believe it's her name. Yeah, Dan yeah Alice. They uh, got big parts in and just how batshit crazy is that you see the Freddy baby run around. I mean, nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it knows exactly what it is. It's trippy and it's weird. One of the reasons it's not nearly as terrible as I think a lot of people say it is with like bringing back characters. It does a very impressive job of actually developing Alice's relationship with her father, who in four is like a straight up, very typical abusive dad stereotype. And I like in part five that they actually feel like they're kind of trying to rebuild their relationship. And that he's actually trying to improve himself, which you never yeah. see in like a slasher sequel. Yeah, then they got the like the girl with the eating disorder and they delve into that. They got the comic book kid, which is a great scene with Super Freddy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Fucking awesome. It's a fun movie. It's way better than uh, Dream Master. Yeah. And miles better than Freddy's Dead. Good fucking yes. God. <laughs> as, Agreed. As as we've pretty much beaten to death here, I, I think definitely. I'm gonna beat you to death. 
Well, I, I knew this day would come. I, I think it's about time. <laughs> it's been 78 episodes. I'm surprised this didn't happen earlier. Not Florida. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. Anybody got 78 bucks? So I can't fly into Orlando. I can't wait to go to the Scream Park and get you. <laughs> See, where I need to be on that Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. Come on, Warner Brothers. Pay oh, me, please. boy. <laughs> But uh, we also had some feedback about our last couple episodes uh, that I wanted to read here first. Ryan Marshall says about our Italian horror episode, I love both Cemetery Man and Burial Ground. I'm definitely going to watch Burial Ground at some point at the end, by the end of this month. Uh, Stephen D. at Waiting FTH says, um, I was late to the comments on this one, but I've got so much love for Italian horror. You definitely can't go wrong with uh, Michelle Soovi movies. And uh, then having a film loosely based on Dylan Dog. I'm all there for it, in reference to Cemetery Man. And then reference to our Horror Anthologies episode, he says, I really enjoyed the Amicus movies and uh, the first two creep shows. And then Hunter Ellen at uh, Bruja underscore Baby says, Slither is one of the best movies I've ever seen, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with a lot of those, except uh, Burial Ground is garbage. Oh my god, it's so sleazy. It's just sleazy shit. I mean, they... I, I do movie nights at my place once a month. Mm-hmm. Double feature was two trashy, awful Italian horror films, and they were Burial Ground and Shocking Dark, also titled Terminator 2, and they were actually sued by you know the folks who made Terminator 2 before Terminator 2 was released. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say in terms of the anthology stuff, I didn't mention this in our anthology episode, and because it's technically not quite a horror anthology, but it's a segment in an anthology movie technically, and it's a horror thing that I love watching every year. The animated Sleepy Hollow that Disney did. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I watch that every fucking Halloween. As you should. My, maybe my favorite bit of Disney animation, honestly, is that whole bit. It, it's oh, it's so short good. Film. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. That one stuck with me. Forever, when I saw it as a kid, I still re- even remember the look of Ichabod, the look of everything. I love that movie, or that short, if you want to call it that. It's so good. I've got to revisit that, because I remember that scaring me as a kid, but also I was so into it. It was, yeah, oh, good call. i got to rewatch that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one to rewatch around. Now, this is Halloween week we're releasing this. Um, it's one to definitely, it's one of the few Disney protagonists to be unapologetically like a gold digging asshole the whole time. She's like, he just wants to marry that one girl just so he can get all that money. And he's, Oh yeah. He's a foppish prick. And he's, and he's a horn dog and he's, he's a weird, like ladies yep. man amongst the town, even though he looks, you know, like a beanpole. <laughs> it's so, it's so great. Such a great bit. What are some perennial Halloween watches for you, Desmond? So I would say, uh, night of the demons, trick or treat tales of Halloween. Of course, Halloween, uh, the original, I gotta watch. Uh, Poltergeist. Um, a lot of the classics um, I tend to watch. One that recently came out um, that I is gonna be a Halloween staple for me is gonna be Haunt, which I think is a fantastic slasher film. Um, but yeah, those are those are typically the ones that that I like to watch um, around the thirty first. Is is those movies. All right. And, uh, well, thank you for all that feedback out there. And we also want to thank some other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that we use for our show. And, of course, thanks to Mr. Desmond Alexander Peel. Always fun to have you on, as we previously had. Uh, go ahead and plug yourself. What do you got to plug? Go ahead. 
Hey, yeah, thanks guys for having me. And um, yeah, I have a podcast and a YouTube channel called Desmond's Flicks. Uh, they're both a little bit different. The podcast is more free form. We pick two movies that we talk about. Um, I have a guest on every single week. Uh, upcoming episode um, is going to be um, anthology horror films, actually. And we're going to be talking about Tales of Halloween and Trick or Treat. Um, and then my YouTube channel, Desmond's Flicks, uh, coming up there is going to be a retrospective on the first Candyman film, as well as a defense of Halloween 3. Um, and you can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Desmond's Flicks. Um, look forward to seeing you guys. And, and thanks again for having me. Oh, and thank you for having me on your show. You, if you want more Wes Craven talk, dig into the archives of Desmond's podcast to hear me talk about Serpent and the Rainbow um, and Deadly Friend, which, oh, Deadly Friend. <laughs> oh, boy. The basketball scene. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> There's so much more to say. <laughs> As we did plug. I'm going to be on an episode here in a couple weeks, actually. Yes, I'm very excited for that. That's going to be fun to uh, to talk a couple of exploitation films. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Which, of course, we'll promote as that becomes readily available. For more of us, uh, please make sure to uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. That's where we put up those feelers every Monday and also just throw out some other interesting little tidbits and such. Um, and uh, you can also email us feedback uh, at all spelled out double edge double bill at gmail.com. I also have my own individual Twitter account at not the who's Tommy, uh, where you can follow my little thoughts and feelings um and i also do some writing at both uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com and at uh, truesuperherofans.com that's uh, i do some reviews for the wordpress site uh and i also do uh some super satirical superhero news at truesuperherofans.com for the blog i know i will probably have a review of the lighthouse out um around that time uh, that this is coming out and i'm very excited i haven't seen it yet but uh i i love the witch so i'm all up for that and also, of course, uh, Willem Dafoe as a sea captain, for That's sure. Party is going to play. <laughs> yes, um, and Adam, you actually have something to promote this time because uh, very appropriate for the season, right? I do. I've been doing custom pumpkins for years now, painting them for just my family and friends. Uh, but now I'm actually branching off into a uh, money making business, hopefully. Uh, I'm on facebook.com slash ghoulish gourds. It's all one word. Uh, I'm doing custom made foam pumpkins. So they last clear coat them, custom do them. But I'm also going to be doing uh, Christmas bulbs uh, for ornaments. Uh, anything you want, pop culture related. I specialize in horror art, obviously. But anything you want can be done. And uh, shoot me a message if you mention that you heard about it on the show. I'll cut you a discount for show. He made me a little little shop of horrors Audrey too one. It's adorable. Yeah, I threw it away though. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't throw it away. You threw it into the fire, and then you sent me a video of it. It was really upsetting. I did. I did. And then I pissed on the fire to put it out. <laughs> As like, one does. I was just like, well, at least he cares about safety at the very least. Right. I got a kid. <laughs> <laughs> like the responsible adult you are, yes, you, you took right. precaution. Um, and, and for more mature adult content like that, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are available. And uh, if you're listening on the ESO Network, uh, why not dig into the archives for the first several episodes? And uh, make sure to rate, review, or at least share us around to give the show more visibility, if you can. I mean, why not? 
is it really going to bother you? I, you know, I tell you what, I love our listeners, but God damn it, hook us up. You know, I we we do the shit for free, people. Oh, you know, don't get me started. Well, uh, <laughs> let's not, let's not get him started because uh, we don't we don't want to spoil Halloween. Which, by the way, Happy Halloween, everybody! This is the week of Halloween, of course, yes. well, a few days before the great October thirty first. Uh, but Right after October 31st um, is uh, November 1st, and on November 1st, uh, this very week, this Friday, uh, that we're releasing this out, uh, we got a new Terminator film coming out. Everyone wanted that. Uh, which I'm guessing is going to be a very big horror film as well, but for different reasons. Well, actually, it's weird. The earlier reviews have come out, and everyone is saying it's the first decent Terminator movie since T2, which isn't saying a lot. That's such a That's low not hurdle. anything. No. Yeah, that's, no. Yeah. Well, it's watchable. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's more than you can say for the other three that have come out since T2. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Well. Maybe, maybe. But uh, that's debatable. all. Debatable. You know, that's all fodder for discussion <laughs> for um, our next episode, which um, in honor of Terminator Dark Fate coming out. Uh, Adam, we're doing a topic that's very close to our hearts. Uh, we've mentioned this man several times. We covered a couple of his movies we are going to do our big topic, the first one of November, all about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, sir. I am a huge, huge Arnold fan. Definitely the same. Are you a fan, Desmond? Oh, fuck yeah. I love, <laughs> I grew up on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Commando and Predator was like my childhood, along with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, of course. We have all the horrors of Arnold to detail in our next episode and uh we are gonna go ahead and do our picking for next week uh because uh, for those of you who might be new at the end of every episode we do our picking where in this case i have the two good arnold movies and adam has the two bad arnold movies and we've assigned numbers between one and ten for uh both of those each and uh usually we would pick a number between one and ten ourselves to narrow down what our good and bad feature is for the next episode but when we have a guest like the lovely desmond here they go ahead and uh pick our two films. So for my two good choices, Desmond, number between one and ten. I will give you number three. All right. You know what that means? This That means this is going to be a real party. We're going to see you at the party, Richter, without your arms, because we're doing Total Recall from 1990. Oh, Fuck yeah. Oh, my God. I love that movie so much. Such a great movie. Oh, it's so good. And then at uh, number nine, I have my alternate choice, which appropriate for Terminator Dark Fate was the original Terminator. Oh my god, god damn it. Laundry day. Nothing clean, right? Nothing clean, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but now I'm really curious about Adam's two bad picks. So, Desmond, go right ahead. All right. Uh, seven. And number nine. Uh, I have Junior. Oh no. <laughs> oh god, no. <laughs> This is the darkest order Halloween episode could end on. No. <laughs> it's always darkest before the dawn, bro. Uh, and number two, I had Terminator Gen- Genesis, Genesis, whatever oh. the hell it is. Oh, no. <laughs> mm. uh, I feel like Bruce Campbell at the end of Evil Dead 2. I'm just like, no. Why? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> uh. Oh, God. So, Total Recall and Junior. Well, that'll be something. (laughs) 
God damn it. Uh, well, on, on, on that note, I'm going to just uh, delve into this nightmare of a next episode. Uh, just good night, everybody. Good night, bitches. <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>